Of all the hundreds of exonerees that I've had the privilege to meet, none have touched my heart any more profoundly than Marty Tankliff. And his case is profiled, by the way, in one of the most incredible books I've ever read. It's called A Criminal Injustice, A True Crime, A False Confession, and The Fight to Free Marty Tankliff. It's by Richard Firstman and Jay Saltpeter. It reads like a John Grisham novel, but it's all true. Marty is an incredible human. Since his episode originally aired on November 7, 2016, a number of amazing developments have happened in Marty's life. He received in 2018 a $10 million settlement, which by the way, you could put another zero on it, it still wouldn't make up for what he went through. Marty passed the bar exam and he's pursuing a career as an attorney advocating criminal justice reform and fighting to right wrongful convictions. And if that wasn't enough for you, Marty is now a professor at Georgetown University, leading a class with Professor Mark Howard that is helping to resolve wrongful conviction cases. They already had their first win in the case of Valentino Dixon, who's been on my show. Marty Tankliff, a profiling courage, an unbelievable story that you have to hear. So please listen to my interview with Marty Tankliff. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see See what music does to people. It gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. 
Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I came from a beautiful neighborhood. I had a beautiful life. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. I was going to be a senior. At 22, I was set to start college. I woke up and my life was never the same again. Cops came out with guns drawn and I never saw freedom ever ever since after that. It's like Roach Motel. Once you get in, you're not getting out. This is Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. I'm very excited today because I have two people who I uh, consider heroes of mine for different sets of reasons on the show. Marty Tankliff is here today. Marty is an exoneree who was wrongfully convicted of murdering his parents, um, which I get the chills just hearing myself say that. Um, And he's going to share his remarkable story of going through what could be considered one of the most traumatic experiences that any human being could ever endure and his subsequent triumph post-exoneration. You will be amazed at at what he's been able to accomplish and overcome. We also have today Saul Kasson, and I'm gonna embarrass Saul a little bit by reading part of his resume because it's quite uh, extraordinary. Saul is is a true hero of the innocence movement. Uh, He's a distinguished professor of psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York and Massachusetts professor emeritus at Williams College. He's received his Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut. Moreover, Saul pioneered in the 80s the scientific study of false confessions by introducing a taxonomy that distinguished between three types of false confessions, voluntary, compliant, and internalized, that is universally accepted today. He has recently studied forensic confirmation biases and the impact that confessions have on judges, juries, lay witnesses, forensic science examiners, and the plea bargaining process. He is widely considered the foremost expert on false confessions. So welcome, both of you. Thanks for coming in and joining us today. Thank you for having us. Um, Marty, let's start with you. So let's go back to you grew up in Long Island. I grew up in an affluent area called uh, Beltair, New York, which is a little hamlet in Port Jefferson, New York, North Shore, Suffolk County. Um, I was lived in a kind of a wonderful area. I uh, went to Port Jefferson High School where the norm was. We drove nice cars. We went on boats. Um, and what happened to me was not something myself or anyone in my neighborhood could have ever imagined. No, no one could imagine it. Um, you had a happy childhood. Uh, it's a nuclear family, right? You yeah. and your sister, your parents. Yeah, idyllic, a little bit more idyllic because I, uh, I was adopted. So my parents were older. So uh, a lot of what we did growing up, my father lived vicariously through me because he didn't have a very good childhood. So, you know, we had the boats, the ATVs, we traveled a lot. So it was very, it was a great childhood. And he was the bagel king, right? He, what he did was, is my father was an entrepreneur who invested with Jerry Stewerman, who was then known as the bagel king of Long Island. Right. So everything's fine. Everything's good uh, until one really terrible, fateful day. 
And let's talk about that. Um, and we're going to get to you, Saul, in a minute when we get into the deeper issues surrounding what happened to Marty. Um, but first, I want to set the stage. So you're, um, you're at home, right? Typical day, you wake up in the morning. Walk uh, us through this. Let me give you a little background. My father was partners with Jerry Sturman, had invested over a half a million dollars with Jerry in his bagel stores and horses. And in the summer of 1988, their relationship significantly deteriorated. What I later learned was is that we believe my father learned what Jerry's business was really about. Um, Jerry's son, Todd, was a drug dealer. And we believe my father kind of realized that the bagel businesses may have been a money laundering operation for Todd's drug dealing business. And, and we're talking hard drugs. Not hard, hard drugs. Yeah, hard uh, drugs. Todd was arrested, went to prison for possession of cocaine, marijuana, and other drugs, and he served time in New York State prisons. Um, but my father was a tough, older man. Nothing would stop him. And one of the things that he was involved with was is there was a weekly poker game. And on September 6th was his night to hold the weekly poker game. And one of the members at that game was Jerry Sturman. Uh, and right. my father was the type of man, it didn't matter you know, how much threatening uh, Jerry Sturman did. And there were threats. Uh, we later learned uh, about two weeks before September 6th, Jerry Sturman threatened to cut my father's tongue out. Um, and it got so bad that my father was even looking into buying a shotgun because he was fearful. Right. So and it seems crazy that he would still allow him into his house. But as you said, your dad was a tough guy. He didn't really fear anyone. And, and now we've set the stage. There's the poker game, right? There's obviously it's a tense environment, right, with the two of them in the room. Um, and uh, But you went to sleep. I went to sleep because September 7th was the first day of my high school year. Um, you were going to be a senior. I was going to be a senior. Right. And I woke up and my life was never the same again. So you woke up in the morning and... The situation was that I woke up that morning, um, noticed that the lights were on in my house, the house wasn't locked up, um, walked through the house. You and were upstairs? It's a ranch house. It was okay. a very long ranch house where the bedrooms were in one end of the house, um, where the card game was, was in the complete opposite end of the house. Right, so you wouldn't have heard anything. Wouldn't have heard anything. Um, and I discovered my father, who was still sitting in his office chair, um, and he was alive, um, and he was bleeding. Bleeding profusely? Profusely, yes. Right. Um, and what'd you do? I called 911, um, and I followed their instructions, and eventually law enforcement showed up. Right, they told you to wrap him as best you could, give, gave you some medical tips, whatever, try to stop the bleeding, yes. that kind of stuff, right? Um, and within a short period of time, law enforcement showed up at the house, and where's your mom? Um, uh, I ended up, my mother was actually in her bedroom. Cops come, and immediately they remove me from the house. Um, and what, what I kind of can say now is that the process of questioning me, trying to find out what happened, started almost immediately. Uh, even when I had family members show up that morning, there was this immediate separation. Um, I was told consistently I was being taken to the hospital, um, unfortunately, I was never taken to the hospital. I ended up being taken to police headquarters. So they took you to police headquarters because, and obviously this whole sort of pattern is emerging, right, where they wanted to, they had an agenda. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at that day, I didn't know that. No, I mean, of course I was not. 17 years old. My father was the police commissioner of our little community. I was raised to trust law enforcement, believe in them. Uh, law enforcement wouldn't lie to you. They wouldn't deceive you. 
Unfortunately, that's everything that they did that morning. Right, and you're in an extremely fragile state, and you need help. Right. You need someone to help you. You're 17 years old, right? I mean, it's, uh, you're, and, and you're still a child, basically. Still a child, and every time a family member showed up or a friend showed up, they were ripped away again that morning. So when my brother-in-law showed up, he was ripped away. When my godfather, who was also the family attorney, showed up, I saw him. He never saw me, but McCready, who was the lead detective, his name is K. James McCready, was the lead detective on the case, uh, ran to him and basically told him I was already on the way to the hospital. I wasn't at the house, even though I was at the house. Right. So there's a pattern of deception and and uh, maneuvers that are uh, disingenuous at best, let's say. But the fact is, at this point, were you aware that your mom had been killed? Yes. Um, so you're in a state of total shock, panic. I, how can you even describe it? Words can't describe it. I mean, people, it, it's... You were close to your parents. I... They were my parents. I mean, they you know, adopted they, you and everything else. I was adopted before I was born. They're the parents, the only parents I ever knew. Um, they, I had the most amazing childhood. I mean, there was nothing I didn't have growing up. Um, you know, people used to joke that I was a spoiled kid, and I was. Uh, but my father instilled amazing work values in me. I was working since I was probably eleven or twelve years old. So, um, but so I traveled with my with my parents. I mean, I did everything with them. So let's get to the um, the interrogation and the false confession and, and prison and the whole saga. You you uh, you st- ended up serving six thousand three hundred thirty eight days, which is about seventeen and a half years. What I tell people is, I said, imagine, you know, seventeen years. What you know, from the time you're born to the time you're seventeen, losing the entire period, or losing your entire twenties, right? I, I like ninety percent of, of your thirties. From 17, well, you know, the first few years, you don't even know what's going on. But the fact is, from 17 to 34, that's when you're building your life. That's really, you know, those are the formative years for anybody to establish relationships, uh, you know, both uh, personal, sexual, uh, business, uh, college, all all that stuff's out the window. So let's, I mean, you're obviously very familiar with Marty's case. You've known Marty since 1993, is that right? Or you've known of each other. he, he he, He started writing letters to me from prison. Uh, in 93? In, in 93. Right. And in 93, what were you doing? I was a professor uh, at Williams College studying uh, the psychology of false confessions. I had just become interested in false confessions, and I was doing some research and publishing that research. How would you get interested in it? Uh, actually, I got interested because I came out of graduate school in social psychology interested in how juries make decisions. And after collecting some initial data for the first several months of a postdoc, uh, I was at the University of Kansas. Uh, it became clear to me that every time I had a case in which there was a confession in evidence, all variability of jurors' responses dropped out. Everybody voted guilty. Confession evidence was perfect in the minds of the average juror. It's, is it the most powerful evidentiary tool that there is? Yes. And there is Trump's uh, DNA or... Uh, yes. I mean, we've seen cases, uh, uh, and you've obviously seen so many of them, in which a jury is presented at the same time with a false confession and DNA that yes. proves scientifically, yes. without any doubt, yes. that it could not have been the person who gave the confession, and they will choose which one. They will choose. They will. They will vote guilty on the basis of that confession. Almost. And they will explain away. They will find ways to explain away the DNA. Right. So you're presented with a thing that shows. I mean, because in a violent crime, if there's physical contact and there's blood and there's DNA, if it's a rape, if there's an yes. assault, if there's a stabbing, there's DNA. Right. And if your DNA is not there. You weren't there. 
Right. Nobody's ever been able to figure out how there to be, are, both there be there are, and not be there at the same there time. There are cases on record where not only did the DNA exclude the confessor at the point of trial, but it identified the perpetrator. And still, the confessor was convicted. Right. So people can, and I know this too from my own experience... It's very, very difficult for people to wrap them, and mine is anecdotal, um, but uh, it's very hard for people to wrap around the idea of anybody would confess. We know that with juveniles, it's much more common right. um, because they're more impressionable. And in many cases, they can be actually coaxed into or, or coerced into believing that they actually did it. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Which is go, really go, a, a, another level of, of yeah. you know. Go, go into any audience of lay people and ask the question, would you ever confess to a serious crime you didn't commit? Not a single hand will go up. Short of sometimes you get an occasional hand that'll go up, and someone will say, "Well, if you had a gun to my head." Right. But short of that, uh, no normal person of sound mind would confess to a crime they didn't commit. And people use that personal belief about themselves as the frame of reference. And so it's very, very unlikely that you can get people easily to believe that an innocent person was induced to confess to something they didn't do, and not just something the highest stakes crime in the system, murder. murder. Right. So let's talk about this as it relates specifically to what happened with Marty in the interrogation room. Yeah. So here's Marty in a state of, uh, as we talked about, in a state of panic and shock and grief and, uh, you know, just spinning, right? And as we discussed, he's still a child. Um, and the fact is a teenager, a young teenager, um, and so what happened? I mean, how did, you know, because his confession is different than any of the other ones I've studied, yes. right? Because yes. it may or may not have ever even actually happened. Right. Right. Usually they actually get somebody to say something on video or they'll get a, a written statement or something. But in Marty's case, it's much more it's, it's much more highly nuanced, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And in Marty's case, something that almost all of these cases have in common, you've got to ask yourself the first question, why did Marty... A 17-year-old without a criminal record, without a history of violence, with good parents and good relationships in an affluent community, why would Marty kill his parents? In, in a brutal way. In a brutal, in the, in the most brutal of ways. And because you have they, to ask they, yourself the question, how in God's name did he become their suspect? Well, we haven't talked about that, but Marty, your parents were beaten to death, is that right? There was a, a bludgeon instrument uh, and a knife. Uh, and to this day, neither one has been discovered. And there was some forensic evidence, which I can talk about. There was glove prints. So whoever did do this were wearing gloves, um, that they still haven't found the gloves. So, I mean, there's all these little things that actually the jury was aware of, but as you said, they chose just to ignore. So, yeah, so we should believe that you killed your parents in the most vicious way in, at night and then went to sleep and then waited till the morning and then called 911. And, you know, most people said, well, you know, he did it for the money. Uh, because they thought my parents were affluent, the way the wills were structured, I would have gotten everything. Uh, and we later learned that law enforcement never really understood the way the wills, they never looked into the way the wills were structured. But the way the wills were structured was that I wasn't going to benefit financially until I was 25. And I was 17. So, you know, as one of my aunts said, what was he supposed to do from 17 to 25? Live on the streets? So Marty's in the interrogation room. We know that they have um, misled, is it not probably a nice way to put it, his, uh, his family guardian at this point, right? Your godfather, who was also the only lawyer that was available to you at this time. Right? They had kind of misled everybody, though. I mean, I had other cousins and aunts and uncles who were at the hospitals, and they were lied to, too. They were told, 
Marty's on the way to the hospital. Marty's on the way to the hospital. Right. So they're basically doing everything they can to prevent you from having any uh, responsible guardian or legal representative from being there to be able to help you uh, in this in this situation. To be able to, that might be able to stand in the way of them getting the conviction that they wanted, regardless of truth. Yes. They weren't after the truth. There, there was no truth-seeking here. I mean, you have a man who was business partners with my father, half a million dollars involved, was there the night before. My father also had, in the weeks prior, had demanded, he had two notes, $50,000 back. In the days after the murders, Jerry Sturman cleaned out a joint bank account. He faked his death. He fled to California. He had a hair weave back then, and he went to a club that he wasn't a member of. Um, he had five or six different aliases at that moment. Um, but law enforcement never considered him a suspect. And every time I tell people, you know, the average person would say, well, how is he not a suspect? I mean, you could have stopped that he faked his own death. Right there, if this was a TV show, people are changing the channel. They're like, okay, <laughs> this is done. I don't need to watch the rest of this. This is our guy. We got him. Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. 
It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. So Saul, there he is in the interrogation room alone. Alone. Seventeen. Not streetwise, never been in trouble before, never had to worry about how do you behave when you get picked up by police. And couldn't he have just said, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, how could, uh, what happened in his brain and what Well, is I can the- tell you very simply what happened in his brain. He had done nothing wrong. And the funny thing about innocent, innocent people is even if, you, even if they had read him as Miranda rights, he would have waived those rights. Right, most people do. He would have waived those rights. And because he, would, he did nothing wrong. He did nothing wrong. So why would he worry about whether he, he had waived nothing his Miranda to fear, rights? He had nothing to hide. He had nothing wrong. And so Miranda becomes not a safeguard that's particularly effective at this point. He is now, and keep in mind, they've got him in police headquarters. The whole family is with his father, who is dying but still alive in the hospital. That's where Marty wants to be. If you're looking for what is it to incentivize him to cooperate so that he can get out of there and get to the hospital, that's his incentive. He wants to be at the hospital. So he's already in a state where he's motivated to cooperate. And they start asking him questions about what he saw, how he saw it, what had happened. And he gives them answers, and the answers are consistent. They don't believe him. They tell him they don't believe him. They asked for the story to be told again. Right. He was asleep. He woke up. He went down the hall. He found him. He called 911. He held the towel. He followed instructions. Actually, not only did he do anything wrong, he did everything right. Exactly. And they're searching for inconsistencies. And they're calling him a liar. And they're not believing the story that he keeps telling over and over again. And then they switch gears at some point. Now, keep in mind, I'm presenting this as if it's a chronology. But I have no idea. Nobody has any idea what really happened because they didn't record the process. That's something that we at the Innocence Project have been advocating for for years. Absolutely Every interrogation should be recorded. There's no reason why it shouldn't be and every reason why it should be if, in fact, what we're looking for is the truth. Exactly. And this raises a very important and too often invisible point about the Innocence Project and the Innocence Community and the concern about innocence and wrongful convictions. If your concern is law and order, this should concern you. Because from a law and order standpoint, every time you get a confession from an innocent person and that person is then prosecuted and convicted, there is a criminal creating new victims out there. And that is on them. And we do know from our exonerations uh, and the studies that we've done that in uh, a, a very large percentage of the cases in which we've exonerated the innocent person and identified the actual perpetrator, that perpetrator has gone on to commit other heinous crimes that had law enforcement acted properly and done their job, that person would have been in prison appropriately, and those other victims never would have had to suffer. And and often, it turns out, often that suspect, that, that suspect turned criminal, was in the crosshairs of police at the time. Right. But once you take a confession, and this is what some of the research shows, once police take a confession, they engage a process of tunnel vision. 
they shut down the case. Right. What but, the innocent person doesn't realize, because one of the odd things about innocent people confessing is sometimes they get so stressed out and so worn down, they get to a point where they think, okay, what do I got to do to get out of here? And in the back of their mind, they're thinking, you know what? I didn't do anything wrong. When they get to do the investigation, when they get other evidence, they'll see I didn't do this. So where do I sign to get myself out of a bad situation with the an, promise? An impossible situation. Impossible. And, and, and they have in their head the promise of a future exoneration because, after all, they did nothing wrong. What the innocent person in that situation thinking that way doesn't realize is their confession doesn't open the case. It closes the case. Right. In Marty's case, here he is. Marty didn't actually really confess, did he? Well, we again, we don't fully know what happened. Here's here's the story as I understand it from from the evidence that's available. They break him down. They bring him in. He wants to be at the hospital, and it's clear that the only exit for that to happen is for him to cooperate. But it still doesn't work, and they're they're challenging every denial. But then they shift gears, and they shift gears toward a, a procedure now where they start to lie about the evidence. Now. The average American doesn't know this. The average American doesn't realize that in the United States, police are allowed to bring in a suspect and lie about the evidence. They're allowed to say to the suspect, we have your fingerprints on the murder weapon, even if that's not true. What happened in Marty's case is they bring him in. They say, well, you know, it appears that your mother was in a, a struggle and there's hair in her grasp. And it turns out it's your hair. We did the analysis. It's your hair. And that confused Marty wasn't true, but he got confused as to how that was possible. And then because it was such a bloody scene, it was two bloody scenes, there just wasn't enough blood on Marty to account for that. Uh, they suggested to him that he had showered before calling 911. He said, no, I didn't use the shower. They came back and said, well, we did a humidity test in your bathroom, and we found that the shower had been used that morning. A humidity test. A humidity test. I don't believe uh -huh. even on CSI they've given us a humidity test. Um, he's in something of a twilight zone. And so now, now they've delivered two lies, and then the detective delivers the ultimate lie. He leaves the room. There are two detectives in there. The lead detective, McCready, leaves the room, stages a phone call, and comes back, and comes back to deliver the news to Marty. Marty, I've got good news and i got bad news. I just spoke to the folks at the hospital. The good news is your father has come out of his coma. He's regained consciousness. The bad news is he said you did it. Now, think about this for a moment. Fucking sick. It's, I mean, it's really insane. Sick. You've got a 17-year-old, and you're now delivering one lie after another, culminating in a lie that to Marty, the person he trusts most in his life, has just said he committed this crime. And not only did Marty, of course, had no choice but to believe that, that evidence, because he doesn't believe police would lie to him, certainly not like that, even McCready's partner said he believed it. That is, McCready's partner believed that presentation. So what choice does Marty have now but to wonder, how is it possible that they have this kind of objective evidence? My father doesn't lie, he said. And that lie just broke Marty down. So Marty said, my father doesn't lie, which they then took to mean, so maybe this is true. Maybe I actually did this, right? Ma Marty has almost no cognitive choice but to accept that information. Well, because he's point. got two things, right? His father doesn't lie, and the cops don't lie. Right. These are the two things that he believes. Exactly. And so those things lead to one conclusion. One conclusion. And I one must have done it. And right. so where does the conversation turn? It turns in the direction of, well, how can you explain the fact that 
I don't think I did it. I don't remember having done it. And yet there's all this unimpeachable objective evidence of my guilt. How is that possible? And the conversation turns to memory, consciousness, the possibility of sleepwalking and doing it without awareness, the next morning waking up and having not realized what had happened. Now, there are different categories, different types of false confessions. One of those types is, it's, it's not the most common type by any means, but it happens. The first time I laid eyes on one, it shocked me. I've now seen several of them, and the script is always the same. It, this is the internalized false confession, where not only do the police use stress tactics to break a suspect down to, to give a, a compliant confession and to agree to sign a statement, but they actually get the suspect to believe he committed this crime. Right. They actually confuse the suspect enough so that they don't even trust their own memory anymore because you've handed them this objective evidence. They somehow need to reconcile that evidence with what they can't remember. And what happened in Marty's case is like you see happens in a number of these cases. They start to talk about memory and consciousness and generate theories for Marty to explain how come you don't remember doing this. So we know that that was the nature of the conversation. We know that for some degree of, of transient time, Marty became confused about even his own innocence. Right. And this goes back to what we were talking about before, which is that the it all is the perfect storm because had Marty had a guardian or a lawyer yes. in the room, they would have certainly said to him, Marty, they can li- they're lying. They can be lying to you. Yes. They can be making this up. Right. But there's no grown up there. There's nobody there to protect you in the situation in life in which you most need protection. Now, we should stop to realize something about this tactic. As pernicious as it sounds, people should know that it's lawful. That in 1969, the U.S. Supreme Court addressed that in in a case. They addressed the issue of are police allowed to deceive a suspect about the evidence? And they concluded that, yes, that that tactic does not put an innocent person at risk. Well, I'm sorry. The courts need to revisit that issue. Oh, it's crazy. Lying about evidence, and there is now ample research, actual cases, laboratory studies, field studies. We now know, and 100-plus years of basic psychology tells us, when you lie to people about evidence, when you lie to people about reality, you can change their perceptions, you can change their memories, you can change just about every aspect of their cognitive function. Sure. What happened to Marty is psychologically very understandable. It is when you when you take all these things into into uh, it, it is. His confession was a handwritten statement, handwritten by the detective, that I can tell you, summarizing everything I know about the case file, is inaccurate as a description of the crime. It doesn't complete itself. It actually ends in mid sentence, and it is unsigned. Now people do a double take when they hear. What do you mean it was unsigned? This confession, the so-called confession, was written by the detective and not signed by Marty. And yet that allegation of that confession is the one and only piece of evidence that he was that was used to convict him. People need to become better consumers of confession evidence. They need to understand also that, because there's a misconception, the misconception is this, I'd know a false confession if I saw one. No, you wouldn't. We've done those studies. We've done that research. We've taken true confessions, false confessions. People can't tell the difference. Cops can't tell the difference. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man 
take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Selena? Like, really love? Whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to stand the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Let's go back for one moment. The trial? You want to go back to the trial? I want to go back to the trial because I remember seeing that picture of your face at the moment of uh, conviction. And, uh, you know, the, the, the amount of pain uh, that's in that picture is um, you feel like you're in the shoes of that person. You're at trial. You still believe that justice is going to be done? At, at trial, still believe it. I mean, this is what the lawyers are telling me. The system works. Um, I was innocent. I testified on my own behalf. And, you know, this was a long trial. It was probably about 10 to 12 weeks long. What's interesting about my case is that, you know, it was my parents who were murdered, and my entire family supported me. 
And that's what made this case very difficult because many prosecutors said it was the most difficult case they had to prosecute because the victim's family and the defendant's family were the same family. And I can't tell you how often my family would say, don't you see there's something wrong here? You know, we're the, we're the victim's family and we're the defendant's family and we know Marty's innocent and we believe in Marty. You know, but you're just, you just don't care. And law enforcement didn't care back then. They just were focused on me and that was it. So you're at trial. All the, uh, the, the testimony's been heard. 10 to 12 week trial is a long trial. Everyone's fatigued by this point. Nobody more than you. The deliberations wasn't a one day, two day, three days. This was eight days. Torture. The prosecutors had charged me with intentional murder and depraved indifference murder. So when we got called back in, the first verdict that was read was not guilty. And then all of a sudden, the second one was guilty. The one thing I vividly remember is the walk after they read the guilty verdicts over to the county jail. Because they had these tunnel systems. And I remember just, I felt like I was being led like a dog. um, Because I was just listening. And I remember getting to the property room. And I remember the property room officer saying, what are you doing here, Marty? And I go, why else would I be here? And then everything else went blank for about the next six or seven days. But I remember that moment. And it was just this level of shock between the both of us. That he's looking at me going, you couldn't have been found guilty. And I kind of said, well, why else would I be standing here in front of you? at the property room. The most common story about innocent people when they hear their guilty verdict read is they're shocked. Even if they're the only person in the courtroom who's shocked, they're shocked. They expect it to be acquitted. Marty, I want to talk about this for a minute. Now you're thrown into this environment. You're in maximum security prison, is that right? Yeah, I was uh, went from Downstate Correctional Facility, which is a reception facility, to Auburn Correctional Facility, which is another maximum security facility. Uh, and, you know, People think when you went for, I was in four prisons primarily. Everyone was in a maximum security facility. Everyone is hell. Um, And everyone, everyone in the facilities, you basically, every day it's a fight for your life because you never know in maximum security facilities what could happen. Whether it be the gangs going to war with each other, the officers taking, you know, their aggression out on you, or just the random attacks that occur just for no reason whatsoever. Right. I mean, we know that people are being killed every day in prisons in America, um, sometimes by guards even. But, uh, absolutely. Uh, but, uh, for, for me, it, it, as strange as it sounds, is when I went through downstairs, which was a reception facility, uh, my case was very high profile. So prisoners knew about the case, guards knew about the case. Um, and I had a guy come up to me and he said, listen, he goes, if you want to survive, he says, don't do drugs, don't get involved with drugs, don't get involved with homosexuality, don't get involved in gambling, um, gangs. He said, and work your way into the college program or the law library. He said, you're innocent. He said, and one of the hardest things is, once you're innocent, is getting out. He said, but you'll figure out a way to do it, but work yourself into the law library. The prisoners were really the best judges of character because the guys who are career criminals, they knew who were innocent and who weren't. Um, And very early on, even the guards, I mean, uh, to this day, I am still in touch with some prison guards who saw that I was innocent, and you know, I found out years later uh, at Auburn Correctional Facility, there was one guard who actually used to quote unquote look out for me, um, make sure I was okay because he knew I was innocent. So now we're six thousand three hundred and something days into this horrible Kafka-esque uh, trip through the maximum security prison system of New York State, um, and you are now uh, at a point where you know you have a new hearing coming up, right? Well, my lawyer said, okay, what's never been done here before? 
And we said a, a full investigation. And that's when I started looking for private investigators and ended up hiring Jay Salpeter. And one of the things that Jay said to me was, if you're innocent, hire me. If you're guilty, don't. I said, I'm innocent. I'll hire you. And I just find the truth, Jay. And it took years. Um, it took years for him to track down people. But what he did was, what, never, what nobody else did. Who benefited financially from my conviction? Stewartman. So he started with the Stewartmans and just started branching out. Uh, and they ended up finding the individual by the name of Glenn Harris, who was the getaway driver um, for people we've identified as the murderers. You were sentenced to? 50 years to life. 50 years to life. My first opportunity to appear at a parole board was 2040. 2040. Right. So we're in 2016, so you know, 2040. 2040 would have been my first chance for release. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. MTV's official Challenge Podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elia connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.